Hey, y'all, today we begin a new series that's going to take us for the next seven weeks. We're in the season of Lent, and so if you're maybe new to church, you're watching online, you're not real sure about that kind of religious lingo, Lent is a season in the church calendar, which we don't do a whole lot of here at First Baptist, but Lent is a season of 40 days, not counting Sundays, where what we are doing is we are preparing our hearts for Easter. Easter is the greatest celebration that the church could possibly have. Easter is the reason that we exist. And so what we do is we are, as we are getting ready for our greatest celebration, we want to intentionally carve out some time to take a look at our hearts, to take a look at our lives, and to ask those sort of deep questions about who we are and how do we follow Jesus to the best of our ability so that we can be Easter people in this world. So that's what Lent is really all about. And I'm thrilled that you're with us this morning here in the room or watching online as we kick off this new series. And it's good. It's right for us to begin, as always, by reading from the story of God and God's people. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. If not, no worries. The words are going to be on the screen, and you can just follow along as I read to us from this story early in the ministry of Jesus. Let's hear now from Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and at the end of it, he was famished. And then the tempter approached him. If you really are God's son, he said, tell these stones to become bread. The Bible says, replied Jesus, that it takes more than bread to keep you alive. You actually live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him off to the holy city and stood him on a pinnacle of the temple. If you really are God's son, he said, throw yourself down. For the Bible does say, after all, that God will give his angels a command about you and that they will carry you in their hands so that you won't hurt your foot against a stone. But the Bible also says, replied Jesus, that you mustn't put the Lord your God to the test. 
Then the devil took him off again, this time to a very high mountain. There he showed him all the magnificent kingdoms of the world. I'll give the whole lot to you, he said, if you will fall down and worship me. Get out of here, you Satan, replied Jesus, for the Bible says, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And then the devil left him, and angels came and looked after Jesus. So I don't know if y'all were paying attention to the news this week, but Aaron Rodgers, if you're not familiar with Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers is currently the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And Aaron Rodgers did something that was really kind of outside of the norm for our culture. Aaron Rodgers this week went on a darkness meditation. Any, any of you following the news about Aaron Rodgers? Okay. And why did he go on this darkness meditation? Let me just back up for a minute. Aaron Rodgers is a weird, weird man, okay? I've gone, I actually went to go, I got to go surfing with Aaron out in California one time, and he is as weird in person as he seems like he is on television, okay? But Aaron Rodgers goes on this darkness retreat because he has a massive decision to make. Does he want to play football next year? And riding on the line, is $65 million. I don't know about you, but I think I'd probably just play. Maybe, maybe. But, but seriously, y'all, at a deeper level, what was interesting is that Aaron was saying, I need to figure out what my life looks like. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to intentionally withdraw and go and be by myself. And while that seems incredibly strange to most Americans and most people in Western culture, I got to tell you that I have actually done not a darkness retreat, but I've done a few silent retreats, a few silent retreats. And the last one I did was in 2019. I, I was working on my doctoral work and I really kind of hit this moment where I needed to focus and think deeply about what the next step was. And so I went to, the, to a, a monastery in Conyers, Georgia. Yes, there's a monastery in Conyers, Georgia. And so I went to this monastery and it was a three-day silent retreat where literally you did not say anything to anyone, not even at dinner time. And let me tell y'all, when you go on a silent retreat, it is a weird place to be. It is a weird place to be because immediately, once you check in, my mind, y'all, it just started racing. My first thought, obviously, like most of us would have, is like, uh, when do I get my cell phone back, right? When do I get my cell phone? One of my favorite theologians, a guy named Walter Brueggemann, we might just call them cell phones or iPhones or whatever, but Brueggemann calls them weapons of mass distraction. I love that, don't you? And so my first thought was like, I got to get my phone. I got to do my thing. And then after that, like I get past that point and my mind starts racing and it's asking all these really kind of ridiculous questions. Did I lock my car? Did, did I fold the laundry before I left? Cause I told Sarah I was going to, is Tupac still alive? I don't know. My, my mind is just going, going, going. And finally, after like y'all, it literally took almost half a day. And finally, my mind settled into this place where I began asking not simple, easy questions, but I began to probe like the depths of who I was as a person. And you begin to ask questions about identity and questions about meaning. I just finished a book by a guy named Luke Burgess. And Burgess talks about silent retreats. And mine was incredible. And what Burgess says in his book, Desire, and it's a great book if you want to read it during Lent. But, but Burgess says that before any of us go and make major decisions about our lives, one of the best things that we can do is we can carve out time for silence. Not just five minutes or ten minutes, but an hour, two hours, where we remove ourselves from distraction and we think deeply about the things that we are about to do and what matters most in our lives. And we live in a culture that just never, ever, 
ever slows down. One of the great thinkers of the Western tradition is a guy named Blaise Pascal. And I actually think Pascal sums it up perfectly when he says this, that all of humanity's problems come from man's inability to sit quietly alone in a room. All of humanity's problems come from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone by himself. Because if you are willing to do that, then you can begin to process and think deeply about what matters most in this world. You can begin, I think, to ask questions about identity. I read to you from this story of Matthew, right? Jesus ha has gone out into the wilderness, Matthew says, to be tempted by Satan. And we're going to get to that part in just a few moments. But before we get there, what we need to do is we need to back up. Because what happens just before the temptation of Jesus might be one of the most important moments in the whole of Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 3, what we find is that really it's the first moment in Jesus' public life. He's 30 years old, and he comes out onto the scene in the form of a baptism, right? His cousin John, if you're not familiar with Bible stories, John the Baptist was this guy who was baptizing people in the Jordan River symbolically. Like, so way back in the day, thousands of years ago, Israel went from slavery into freedom, and they crossed over the sea. And so John is kind of reenacting that same sort of thing. You're going from slavery into freedom through baptism in the Jordan River, and John is baptizing all these people. And then in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus shows up on the scene and he comes to John the Baptist and he says, I need to be baptized. And what is fascinating is that John says to Jesus, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. But, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is the way things need to go. And so in this incredible moment in Matthew's story, what happens is that John the Baptist takes Jesus under the waters of the Jordan River. And when he brings him up, what happens is that a voice from heaven, the very voice of God, calls out to Jesus and says to him, you are my son whom I love, and in you I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love, and in you, Jesus, I am well pleased pleased. It was this incredibly important religious moment in the life of Jesus. And let's pause for just a minute because it is so easy for us to think like, oh, well, Jesus knew that all along. But don't ever forget this, y'all. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was a human being just like us in every single way, except he was without sin. And so when Jesus goes under the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, and he hears that voice of God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus would have had a thousand different thoughts running through his head. A million different emotions running through his heart. And so what I think, what I actually really, I don't think, I'm almost certain of it, and most scholars are as well, is that Jesus was making an intentional decision because he had just gone through this profound experience and he goes off into the desert. This is the thing we really need to understand, that Jesus goes into the wilderness to think deeply, to think deeply about his calling and to think deeply about his purpose in the world. And it is so easy for us to skip right to this temptation narrative and to get into all the interesting stories. But before the temptation, there's an affirmation of his identity. And there is a religious experience that leads Jesus to ask those deep heart and soul level questions. Who am I 
And what am I doing here? Jesus goes out into the wilderness to think deeply about his calling, to think deeply about his purpose. And friends, it is exactly in this moment where the story gets really, really, really interesting. Because Matthew says that Satan came to Jesus and he tempts him with three things. The first thing he says is like, hey, Jesus, I know you're hungry. He's been there for 40 days. Now, in the biblical tradition, 40 days doesn't necessarily mean literally 40 days, although it might. But in the biblical tradition, 40 days is symbolic of a long time. So Jesus was hungry. And, And Satan comes and says, hey, Jesus, God doesn't want you to be hungry. So take this stone and turn it into a a piece of bread. And Jesus responds. And and then in the next thing, what happens is Jesus Jesus is taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. You got to remember the temple in Jerusalem, it's where heaven and earth come together. It's literally where God was thought to live in ancient Israel. And everyone's attention would have been there. And Satan says, throw yourself down from there and the angels will catch you and everyone will see who you are and everyone will celebrate you. And Jesus responds. And then finally, what happens is that he takes him to the pinnacle of the world, right? There are a bunch of films about Jesus's life. And, and the first two temptations of Jesus, you can kind of approximate those in film. But when you get to this final temptation of Jesus, there's no Jesus movie that has gotten this right. Because what happens is that Satan, who has certain amounts of authority and control over the world, he says to Jesus, if you will bow down and you will worship me, I will give you anything that you want. And Jesus says, no, get away from me, Satan. And he's tempted with these three things. And it's easy to look at them as these kind of fantastical elements in the story, but I actually want to give us a shorthand way to think about it. As we look at the temptations of Jesus, here's what Jesus was tempted with. He was tempted with appetite. Jesus, you need this thing. It will make you full. It will make you happy. It will make you whole. He's tempted with appetite. Jesus is tempted with attention. Throw yourself down and everybody can see who you are. Everybody will celebrate you and then you will get the props that you absolutely deserve. And what is so interesting about the life of Jesus is that when he later goes on to heal people and make them whole and bring joy into their life, more often than not, do you know what he says? Shh, don't tell anybody what I did because he doesn't care about the attention for himself. So Jesus is tempted with appetite. He's tempted with attention. People need to know who you are, Jesus. And finally, he's he's tempted with ambition. You can have all the authority in the world. You can have all the power. You think Rome is a great empire? If you'll bow down and and you'll worship me, I'll make you greater than anything you've ever seen. And y'all, the beautiful thing is that on each and every one of those temptations, what Jesus does is he uses Scripture to to speak back to Satan. And and so what I would encourage you to do is that when there are moments in your life, and we're going to come back to this in a few minutes, but when there are moments in your life when you are tempted, the best thing you can do is look to this story and to look at these words because they provide you with a template on how to resist those temptations. And again, we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But as I, as I walk through this temptation story of Jesus, it's really easy to get caught up in those three kind of fantastic stories, the three fantastic temptations of appetite, attention, and ambition. But I actually think the greatest temptation, right, those first three, those are not subtle at all. Those are right on the nose. 
But if you want to get to what I think is actually the most pressing temptation of all, the one that could have derailed the entire Jesus movement right at the beginning, we don't need to go to those three things that Satan tempts Jesus with. But instead, what we need to do is go back to the very first words that Satan says to Jesus. Because you remember, back in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, he goes under the waters. And as he comes up, he hears the voice of the Father speaking to him, you are my son whom I love. You are my son. And Jesus is given identity. And make no mistake about it, the tempter knows what he is doing. Because when Jesus goes off to ask those deep level questions, who am I? What is my calling in this world? The very first thing that Satan does to Jesus is ask a question. And here's what he says. If you really are God's son, hey, are you sure? Are you sure? Maybe you were just at a revival at Asbury College. It wasn't real. Maybe you just had a religious experience and you feel good for a moment, but maybe it wasn't real. Yeah, 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 I know you felt that in the moment, but are you sure? If you really are God's son, you see, friends, yes, he's tempted later on with appetite, with attention, and with ambition, but the thing we need to understand, and we're going to tie this back to our life in just a few moments, but the thing we absolutely have to understand is that the biggest temptation for Jesus is ultimately about his identity. The biggest temptation for Jesus is about his identity. And if Satan can get Jesus to doubt his identity at the very beginning of his ministry, then hear me out, nothing else matters. If Jesus doubts his identity, then, friends, it is so easy for him to give in to the appetites of his heart. If Jesus doubts his identity, it is so easy for him to give in to the call for ambition and attention. Yeah, everybody should know who I am. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. If he doubts his identity, the gig is up. And so Satan comes to Jesus with what I think is the most subtle of temptations. If, if you really are who you say you are, and the biggest temptation that Jesus faces is one of identity. One of my favorite writers and thinkers, he's a public intellectual, he's a, he's a seminary professor, but he's also a public intellectual. He's a guy named Cornell West, and I've talked about Cornell a few times before in the past. And Cornell West, if you are not familiar with Dr. West, do yourself a favor and go and look him up on YouTube. Because Dr. West is like, even, a, even what might seem to be one of the driest lectures you could possibly hear will move your soul. Now, let me be clear. I disagree with like 80% of what he says, but I love listening to this guy talk. And a few months ago, I was listening to Dr. West give a lecture at Harvard. Harvard University, one of the, the most important universities, not just in America, but in the whole of the world. And Cornell West stands up in front of these distinguished faculty members and president of the university and all of these students who have gathered together to hear him speak. And he begins by saying, oh, my dear brothers and my I can't even do his voice. I want to try so bad, but I can't and I shouldn't. But he says, I'm so glad to be here. And he said, you know, it was interesting as the, as the president of the university was reading off my CV, his resume. 
And he said, yes, I've been, I've been a professor at Harvard. I've been a professor at the University of Paris, the founding place of modern academia. I have given lectures at Yale. I've written books that have sold millions of copies. He said, I've done things that most people could never, ever dream of. He said, I even released a spoken word poetry album that won a Grammy. I've done all of these things that the world says are meaningful and important. But then he looks at the crowd and he says to them with these words that I will never forget, that the greatest honor of my life is to be the second son of Clifton and Irene B. West. And then he says these words, and I am who I am because somebody loved me. I am who I am because somebody loved me. And all of these accolades that bring me attention and all of these things that bring about ambition in my heart, ultimately, while I like them, they aren't what defines me. And the greatest honor of my life, he says, is to be the second son of Clifton and Irene B. West. And I am who I am because somebody loved me. And Cornell West, deep down in his heart, has a firmly established sense of identity. And it doesn't come from the ways and the honors of the world, but it comes from a deep-rooted place of love from family and love ultimately from the Father. You see, friends, when Jesus goes under those waters... And he hears those words spoken over him. You are my son, and in you I am well pleased. It is an affirmation of his identity. And if he understands who he is, then nothing can stop him. And what is true of Jesus, ultimately, friends, needs to be true of us. And as we begin to launch out into this Lenten journey, where over the next 40 days we're going to be asking some deep-level questions, if we want to be Easter people, 40 days from now, y'all, in just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the, the turning point in cosmic history. And if we want to do that and do it well, ultimately we need to begin where Jesus began. By asking ourselves deep-level questions of identity. And so what I want us to do this morning, for just a few moments, is I want us to ask this question. Where do you find your identity? Seriously. Seriously. Where do you find your identity? And if we are willing... Y'all, when I prepare these sermons, they were working on me just as much as I hope they work on you. Because if we are willing to be honest with ourselves, where we find our identity far too often is found not in the identity given to us by God when we follow Jesus Christ, but our identity far too often is found in those temptations. Where do you find your identity? And if we are willing to be honest with ourselves for just a few moments, we will find our identity through the pursuit of our appetites. We'll find our identity through the pursuit of our appetites. God says to Jesus, God wants you to be full. So turn this stone into a, to bread. Eat it. Be full. God wants you to have these good things. And in much the same way, God doesn't want you to be in a bad marriage. So text that woman you've been thinking about. 
God doesn't want you to not have what your neighbors have. So go make a bunch of money and spend it on the things that will make you happy. You see, friends, the temptation that Jesus faces, the temptation that we face, the appetites of our heart. And if we are not careful, Satan will say to us, go and be filled because then you will be full and satiated. The temptation for appetite. For some of us, the temptation is to not find our identity rooted in Christ, but to find our identity through the attention we gather. I read some really distressing things the other day about the amount of teen depression, particularly in teenage girls, who spend so much of their time centered on social media and paying attention to what everyone else is looking like and what everyone else is doing and how many likes they are getting and how many followers they have. And their worth is found through the attention that they receive And I wish it was just true of teenage girls, but it's true of a lot of pastors I know, and it's true of a lot of all of us, isn't it? Where do you find your identity? And Satan comes not only to Jesus, but he comes to each and every one of us, and he says, hey, 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 if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you that job you've always wanted. I'll help you have that money that you think will make you happy. I'll give you that thing that your heart has always desired and the appetites can be fulfilled and the attention can be given and the ambition which is endless. I will give you what you want. Where do we find our identity? It is the question, friends, that we have to ask ourselves this morning. And thanks be to God that when Jesus went under those waters, the word was declared over him, you are my son and in you I am well pleased. And for us who are here in this space today, where do we find our identity? And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, I think I can't say it any better than one of the earliest followers of Jesus, a guy named John. And in one of his earliest letters, he writes to the church and he says to them, but also to us, look, look at the remarkable love that the Father has given us, that we, we are called God's children because that is what we are. We are God's children, and that is the only thing that defines us. And when you walk throughout your life pursuing the ambition of your heart and the appetites of the flesh, friends, ultimately they will leave you empty and they will leave you alone and they will leave you dead. The great St. Augustine says it best, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And thanks be to Jesus that what is true of him is true of us. What remarkable love the Father has given that you... Do you hear me this morning? You are called a child of God. And ultimately, what I want you to know this morning, Cornel West said, I am who I am because somebody loved me. And the greatest honor of my life is to be the second son of Clifton and Irene B. West. And what I want you to know this morning, whatever struggles you are going through, whatever difficult things that you are facing, whatever problems you have gotten yourself into, they don't define you. But if you follow Jesus Christ, your identity is rooted in Him. 
And so hear me proclaim this good news to you this morning, that you are who you are because you're loved by the Father. And the greatest honor of your life is to be called a brother and a sister of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest honor of our life. And we are who we are because we are loved by the Father. And ultimately, friends, that's why we're in this room today and we're going to take his body and we're going to take his blood. And we're going to take communion together because we have our identity rooted in him because he was willing to go to the cross for us. The depths of his love knows no end. And what is true of Jesus is true of us. And so if you're here in this room today and you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, whatever tradition you're a part of, I want to invite you to come to the table and take this communion. Find your identity in Jesus. And so I want to pass on the tradition as it's come down to me and to all of us who have gone before. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples in an upper room. And what he did is he shared with them a meal because they were a family. And at the end of that meal, what Jesus did is he took some bread. And he held up that bread before his disciples and he said to them that this bread takes on new significance in this world. Because I love you enough that I'm willing to die for you. I love you enough that I'm willing to go to the cross for you. And so he takes the bread and he holds it up before his disciples and he says to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Find your identity here. This is my body, broken for you. So take it and eat it. The body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. And after he had done so with the bread, then he took the cup and he held it up before his disciples. And he said to them, this, this cup, I know it symbolized the exodus from slavery into freedom, but tonight it takes on a new meaning, a new meaning where you will know that I have loved you to the very end. And he said to his disciples that this is my blood which is poured out for you, that you might find your identity in me. This is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So my friends, we take it and we drink. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Where do you find your identity? May you know who you are because you are loved by the Father. May you know who you are because of Jesus Christ. Let's take a few moments now, friends, and let's pray together. God, we are grateful. We are grateful for another morning where we can gather together in this place and we can sing of your goodness and we can sing of your glory. And God, right now, I want to pray for my friends, some who are watching online others who are here in this room, God, and we find our identity through the things of culture, through the endless pursuit of stuff, through the, through the endless pursuit of attention, God, through the accolades that come through our successes. But God, we know those things are empty. We know those things do not define us. And so God, this morning, my prayer for each and every one of us who are here in this room is that we could ask the deep question, where do we find our identity? And God, this morning, may it be found in Jesus. We thank you for his body, which was broken for us, for his blood that was shed so that we might know you and your goodness. 
What remarkable love we have found. May we know it deep down in the depths of our bones. God, be with us now as we continue to worship and celebrate you. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.